Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the reading of God's holy truth through the Apostle Paul. And Father, to those words there, I ask that you bless us with hearing your heart, hearing the gospel, hearing the security of all believers. That what you began, you will complete. All the way to bringing every Jesus lover to the resurrection of the just. Because of the justification that is in Christ Jesus only. Let us see. Let us revel. Let us worship this morning. Amen. And amen. So yes, we're still here. This paragraph, one more week in verses 3 to 8, focusing on verse 6, because I think it really deserves our laser beam attention to the truth, the reality, and really the hope that is there. In verse 6, one of the most well-known and most quoted verses in all the Bible. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 teaches us what has been known and taught throughout church history and the history of theology as the perseverance of the saints. That wonderful, beautiful, biblical doctrine. In your battle with your own sin, in your battle with fears, in your battle with the inevitability of death that's coming to all of us, and then the judgment. God wants every born again child of His to know something about Him to embolden us in this walk. We all know people who start things very enthusiastically and they don't complete it. They turn their attention elsewhere. God is not like that. If God called you to Himself, if He regenerated you, that means, according to verse 6, He began a good work in you. And if He began that good work in you, He will 
with no doubt and no dropouts, he will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Which means you can be absolutely assured that he will not allow you to be lost or lose the salvation that he began. We who have come to Jesus, we will persevere in faith to the end because God preserves us. He's underneath that work of our persevering. If Paul and Peter or I or you were left to ourselves to, okay, now go and continue in the faith throughout your life with all the battles and sufferings and trials. If we were left to ourselves, none of us would persevere to the end. But if we have salvation in Christ, if we know him because he's called us to himself, we will never lose that salvation. If we lose it and end up condemned, it means you never had it. The doctrine of God's preservation of the saints means in in this context... Once you are actually saved, you are always saved. Let me just bring in a little bit of church history here for a moment. Back in the 1640s, a bunch of the church leaders were called over a period of five years to consolidate the Christian faith, to make a statement of of faith, to say this is what we believe, this is what we hold in Many churches today, this is their confession of faith. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Faith. And in that, concerning the persevering of the saints, the Westminster Confession says the following. And I agree with it. They whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called and set apart by His Spirit, they can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but they shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And he goes on. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election. Flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and the intercession of Jesus Christ, and the abiding of the Holy Spirit, and the seed of God within them. End quote. We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand what our salvation entails. And that not only includes the atonement of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and justification, but it includes the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, of all who were saved. Our individual personal salvation, it began in eternity 
before we were ever created. It is realized in this present world in time and space. That's what we connect with. We know when I was brought to the Lord. Most of us know that moment or that period in our lives. And that's not it. That salvation extends still into the future of the resurrection of the just. As Paul writes here, he will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to know that. Oh, many, many, many genuine Christians are tormented with a lack of assurance that they ought to have. Now, we need to know that for numerous reasons, but here's just one right here. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 12 to 13, And because lawlessness will be increased, it's being increased in this country right now, we Christians will experience more and more persecution that we probably can't even imagine in the near, near, near future of walking with Jesus and holding to Scripture. And because lawlessness will be increased, Jesus says the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, will be saved. Will you? He says those who persevere to the end will be saved. And there's a sense in which that means there's this condition going on here. Will you persevere and be saved? And Jesus' words are explained, the words that He gives to the Apostle Paul, and particularly with these numbers of if clauses in the epistles. If you continue in the faith, firm and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of His calling, then you'll make it. And so, this raises then this big, huge theological question. Are there actually some persons who have true, genuine, saving faith, who do not endure to the end. And therefore, in the end, they will stand condemned at the judgment seat of Christ. Are there such persons? The Roman Catholic Church says, yes, there are. Many evangelicals say, yes, you can actually be saved. Truly in Christ, actually in the way that God knows it, born again, and lose that salvation and be condemned. But if those voices are right, then Philippians 1.6 does not make sense. Now, in reality, if you've been a Christian long enough, those of us who have, we know people, plurality of people, who've been baptized who led worship in churches, loved to sing to Jesus, witnessed for Christ, 
have a professing faith. And for a year, five years, 15 years, and then they turned away, left him and his church. No, I do not believe that stuff anymore. I don't want that. So here's the question. What do we make of that? There are two possibilities of what's happened. So the first is that they never truly were born again. Their faith was not the faith that saves. Their faith was not the faith that was created by the Holy Spirit by miraculously placing them in Christ. It was some other kind of belief. In other words, the way Jesus put it, the Word of God, the Gospel goes out and they're differing soils. So in this case, the first possibility is it's, they're, they're a soil where the seed fell in the shallow ground and it sprung up and said, baptize me and praise God and let me become a pastor or just be on fire for Jesus. Ostensibly, it's, it's there. And because it had no root and no depth of soil, then it withered and blew away. And ultimately bared no true, genuine fruit. Outwardly, you see signs of conversion, but ultimately they get revealed to be those who were never truly born again. You can say it this way, that's the Judas Iscariot category. And it's what the Apostle John clearly taught. So turn there. 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John writes to the church in light of the fact that there were many baptized church members in many, many of the churches that when false doctrine concerning Christ saying that he is not truly a human being. And they were warned and warned and warned to stick to the gospel that the apostles have delivered them. And ultimately they said no. And they said, bye-bye, we're going to go do our own thing now. They're going to leave Christ's church. John says this, starting with verse 19. They went out from us. They left. But they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out in order that it might become plain or clear that they all are not of us. See it? John acknowledges that some have left true Christianity. But listen to his point. He says what this proves is that they never were really of us. 
of the Spirit in Christ. He does not say they were of us, they were truly in Christ, and now they're not. He doesn't say they were truly in Christ and now they've been kicked out of Christ or they are truly born again and now they're unborn again. It's not what he says. But he says their departure made clear they were never, ever truly one of us. And then in that text, notice John contrasted those persons who left Christ with those who are anointed by God, the Spirit of God. Those who have the Word of God living, abiding in them. And he tells them, they will definitely receive eternal life. But they went out in order that it might become plain that they all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge if what you heard in the gospel from the beginning lives in you, remains in you, abides in you, then you also will abide in the Son and in the Father this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. So, what do we make of those who are in pastoral ministry, worship leaders, Christians in the community, and left? First possibility is they never were true. Now, we're down here, we're not God. We're plain and we may know people right now who were once members of churches and are not now walking with Christ. This is the second possibility. Is that they are true believers who have fallen into serious, radical sin. But who will repent and come back to Christ in their walk here before they die. Just briefly. The Westminster Confession, again, concerning that issue, says it this way. Nevertheless, they, the true saint, may, through temptations of Satan and of the world, and the prevalence of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of grace, the means of their preservation, start neglecting it they may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve the Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. They have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded and they hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. But we'll repent. That's not the Judas category. That's the Peter 
denying knowing Christ category. The point is that God who began this good work of salvation in us by new birth, by regeneration, he will preserve everyone in the faith. He makes our continuing faith in Christ, our persevering to the end, not only possible, but he makes it a guarantee. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I know that's just one text. So I'm going to read to you for two and a half, three minutes. Just in probably slowly because I want it to sink in the word of God concerning his preservation of you, his saints. Jesus said it this way in, in John 10. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And Peter, he writes this in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in order to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. It's undefiled and it will never fade away and it is reserved, waiting for you, kept in heaven for you who are Protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God says through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 32, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And this is the new covenant that Christ shed his blood for. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that what? I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Jude 24 and 25. Don't miss it. Now to him, not to you, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. You can't. 
Now to Him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful are you to make sure this happens. Okay, that's a misread. Faithful is He who calls you. And He also will bring it to pass. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, Our Lord Jesus Christ, He will also confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And one more. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, In Him, in Jesus, you also, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. Sealed. In Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given to us as a guarantee of our future inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession which is you to the praise of His glory. This glorious biblical New Testament doctrine is God's promise to preserve every single person that He brought to saving faith. Now, I'm going to have to deal with it because there are those within the church world who disagree with that statement. In one of the strongest texts, they turn to, and I want you to turn there, book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, is Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus writing a letter, dictating a letter to the church at Sardis, says this. Put yourself as one of those members of that church. It's appropriate to do that. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white Garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. It is right in the context of Revelation to understand the book of life to mean those who are saved. Okay? So, there are those who say, Well, look at that right there, Joe. People can have their name in the book of life, saved, 
and then later have it erased or blotted out. And their assumption is this. There could be in the book of life, they have saving faith, they, they are justified, forgiven of all their sins. Christ's righteousness imputed to them. That's where they stand today, July 2020. But when they die in 2033, they will be eternally condemned because their name between here and there got blotted out of the book of life. But the promise, notice, is I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That's all it says. It does not necessarily imply that some have their names actually blotted out. Okay, now, let's be honest with the text. If that's all you have, could that be an implication of that passage right there. Sure. People speak that way. And they can say, no, that's what I meant. Okay. That's why I say, though, it's not the only way to take it. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that. And as we'll just see in a few minutes, by other contexts with the same, dealing with the same thing of the book of life in a second. But the text just simply says, to the one who is in the book, the one in the context who conquers, I will never, ever erase your name. In other words, being blotted out is a fearful prospect which I, Jesus, will never allow to happen. I will keep you safe in the book. Of life. The text does not say that those who fail to conquer and fall away from Christ, it does not say their names were written in the book and then they got erased. And what I mean is you've got to add to that that there are these two other verses in Revelation they refer to the book of life and names written in it that imply that to have your name written in the book of life means you will definitely persevere to the end. Flip over to chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, referring to the beast. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Okay, that's a sign of the unsaved. That is, everyone, he, he defines it more, watch this, who will worship the beast? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This implies that those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they definitely will not worship the beast. Flip over to chapter 17. Verse 8. The beast, 
that you saw was and is and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, here it is, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will marvel to see the beast. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life will marvel. If your name is written there, you will not marvel at the beast. The point is that having one's name written in the book of life guarantees that you will not worship or marvel at the beast. Now the Apostle John here does not say, if you worship the beast, your name will get erased. But if your name is written, you will not worship the beast. So back in chapter 3, verse 5, the conquering. To those who conquer, white robe. I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. The conquering is guaranteed in having their names written in the book of life. And therefore, Jesus, he could say without contradiction, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There's no contradiction in that any more than there's a contradiction in what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So here it is, here it is now. Christians at Philippi, work! Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because, for, because, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's not nonsense. It's not nonsense for Paul throughout his letters to say, if you continue in the faith. To say, you must persevere. You persevere to the end. Jesus, he who perseveres to the end. It's not nonsense to say that and say, oh, by the way, God's the only one who assures who it is is going to persevere to the end in the faith. And he will do it. There's no contradiction there. There are different levels. And it is not nonsense to state a condition like Jesus does to the church at Sardis. If you conquer, God will not blot out your name from the book of life. It's true. And at the same time, to state the assurance that if your name is written in the book of life, you definitely will conquer. I know I want to pause and Think about it for 30 minutes. Make sure you get that. But there's no contradiction in that. The point is clear. Jesus' people whose names have been written in the book of life from before the creation of the world, they must, every one of them, must 
conquer, persevere. And because their names are written there, they're to know they absolutely will persevere. But the one undergirds the other. The one is the reason, the cause, and the surety of the other. He wrote my name in the book of life. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. Or the way Paul will say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, fear unbelief in you. Fear that your faith isn't real. Work it out with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I love this truth. I hope you do. Now, here's a reality. Because we're all sinful. Every true believer is still sinful. And there's an aspect of our sin nature that does not like this teaching. Because to the extent our sin gets ascendancy... Sin wants to take credit. It wants to look at another. I mean, these kinds of words should probably never come out of your mouth as a Christian to another Christian. I can't believe they would do that. Why? Why can't you believe that you would do that? but for the grace of God. Our sin wants to take credit for some aspects of our salvation, our perseverance. Look at me. But think about it. If the doctrine of new birth, and you have that correct, that it causes faith and not the other way around, the way that our Christian life began, he who began, a good work in you, perseverance of the saints follows right in line with the same, same truth of God's grace and God's mercy from beginning to the end when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So what's the truth of new birth? All of us in our sin nature were not seeking God. We did not like God. We rejected God. Romans 3 is true of all of us. None seek Him. No, not one. And then what happened though? You sit here as a Christian. Something happened where you sought Him. You're saved. Only because God came by the power of the Holy Spirit with the preaching of the gospel and regenerated you. Like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, we go about preaching the gospel of Jesus. We make the message clear, and if you believe on him, you will be saved. And what happens? Nobody's saved. Nobody believes. And then he says, oh, 
But those who are called, something happens. They believe. To those who are called, Christ in the message of the gospel, to them becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. As Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And so the point is this. What is true of those very first moments of our Christianity, of coming to faith in Jesus, is true through all of our Christian life. God wants to commune with us intimately in our prayer closets with these truths. He wants you to know that He knew you. Every aspect of every sin you have ever committed, ever will commit, your struggles, your personality, He knew every detail about you before He ever created you. And He, before you were born, chose you. And then, during this life, He went and got you, called you to Himself in order that one day He will fully make you like Christ. It begins in the resurrection, at the glorification of our bodies. That's the gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul can write these words from Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Strange wording. It's because the perseverance of the saints, or probably a better way to say it, because of God's preservation of the saints. It's all over that passage. Notice Paul says, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Well, that's still future. And he puts them all in the past tense. And he doesn't mention our faith. Strange. He's just preached for the last five chapters about salvation. We're justified by our faith. Our faith. And he doesn't even mention faith here because it's assumed in the call. And I just have to believe it's because Paul is purposely focusing, exclusively focusing on God's work. It's God. 
who saves and does it all without our help. That's great news. Because the persecution that's coming, the trials that are coming, and all of life daily, the sin that still dwells in you, He will see you home safely. That's how you're to wake up every day and therefore go work out your own salvation with that great confidence. So why does God save this way? Well, there's a number of reasons. But one of the very clear stated reasons is this so that no human being no creature will ever boast you know the great passage for by grace you have been saved through faith and this this grace and faith that you have is not your own doing it is a gift of God. It's not a result of your works. And here's the goal. So that no one may boast. God will have no boasters in heaven. We sin now. We do boast as His true people. And where the boasting is now, it will be obliterated by the correction of our theology. Then, no one in heaven, in the resurrection, will be able to say, Well, I must admit that God really did most of my salvation. But you know what? I watched some brothers or sisters in church life who are not here now, and they abandoned Him. But So look! I showed what I'm made of by my perseverance. I did it. There won't be any of that. Isn't that good news? Oh, goodness, yes. Now, one more thing. Back to Philippians 1.6. Now, having put that right there, it's, it's all settled right there, okay, now. Now, let's focus on these two words here. Good work. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it, the good work, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Which means, he is not merely saying, God who began your salvation, He's going to complete it. That's absolutely true. It's what I just preached, and it is saying that, but it's saying more than that. Rather, what He is saying is that we're to understand that I know that God saved me for a purpose. And He will not stop. He will keep chipping away at me until He accomplishes it fully at the day. Of Jesus Christ. God will complete the good work. 
And so what is that good work? Here, it's not that God did this work and therefore that's a good thing. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying he began something in the saints at Philippi, which is a good work in them. And so I want to turn back to where we just were for a moment, Romans 8, because I think it really sheds light on what Paul is talking about, this thing that began, because there's evidence that something's radically changed in the believer's life, and beginning with the heart. It sheds light because first Romans 8.28, right? Very famous passage. Don't miss these words in Romans 8.28. According to his purpose. God's got a purpose. He's got a purpose in salvation. And then the very next verse, verse 29, tells us what that purpose is. This good work is. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For or because whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good work he began. Remember how Paul said it in Galatians 4? And he is sent forth. This is new birth. He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Daddy, Father. That's only possible because His eternal Son, who became man and died for us and rose from the dead, his affection for the Father placed in us. That's how you know you're a believer. And it began. And it doesn't stop. He's conforming us to His image. The good work that He began is our growth in conformity to Christ and His character. Now, I'm going to say what I'm going to say very purposefully so that Satan doesn't grab footholds in people's minds. This growth in Christ in this age comes with the growth in the knowledge of our own sinfulness. Those who think that Christian sanctification and maturity means becoming more and more aware of how perfect I'm becoming, they don't know Christianity. Being worked on by God means walking in the light. And the more we walk in the light, the brighter it shines into the dark caverns of our remaining sin brokenness and thus he's doing that and it's a glorious gift what he's doing is constantly driving us to turn our 
daily to him. Look, by God's grace, this is a... a you, you should... How does... I know how. If we're one of true Christian who was read in Westminster Confession there, and then you let sin take hold, and that's how. That's how what? That's how you grow bored with the gospel. The more we're being conformed is the more we're loving all the contours of the gospel. It saves us. The deeper we go with it, the more desperate we feel for it. See, often what happens, and this is God's grace, right? We're graceful to little, you know, we change diapers, little babies, but if they're eight years old and we're doing it, we got a problem. So, so many of us become Christians and, and we start to think for long, because we're so happy, and this is, and God just laughs, I think, at us, and it's terrific. And, but, we, but we think we're not so bad. I mean, after all, I believed in Jesus. At least I got one up on my siblings or my buddies here. I preached the gospel and they don't want anything to do with it. I was smart enough to believe. Okay, the Christian life begins. And then what? You hang out with God in the scripture and God's people. And you start to grow. And you live by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the word of God starts to saturate you in prayer and prayer and prayer. And you pray. And what happens? You begin to see in a way you never saw before how ignorant and sinful you really are. That's sanctification. That's the work of God that he began and is completing till your death. And then he'll ultimately can complete it in glorification at the judgment seat of Christ. God causing his people to constantly flee to Jesus. There's an old radio preacher in the 20th century who was very well known, Barnhouse, and he would say this often. There is no Christian Listening to my voice who will think as well of himself five years from now as he does this morning. God's purpose in this good work that he began at new birth is to drive us deeper into reliance upon him, upon Christ, upon the Spirit. And here's the good news. If you're a true believer... If your faith is genuine, that means he began that good work. And the good news is if he began it, he will keep after you like a hound dog after the prey, not allowing you to ultimately stop persevering in the faith. He will bring you to repentance again and again. And that means you're going to make it. If he began it, there are no dropouts, zero dropouts. And in that sense, once you're saved, you're always saved. We who love Jesus are guaranteed that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ.
And that's why, in that great assurance, we go on obeying Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Father, we thank you for the extent of the work of your Spirit in our hearts this morning. That we would be brought in these closing times here and throughout this week to times of, of intense adoration and worship that our affections would be affected powerfully by your indwelling spirit mixed with the truth of your word that we heard this morning to the glory of Jesus Christ.